Hi, I'm Karen Osborne, and this is Living in the Sandwich Zone, a place where each week we talk all things parenting, caregiving, juggling life, and reclaiming joy. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Living in the Sandwich Zone and part two of my conversation with Dr. Chris Germer. Dr. Germer is a clinical psychologist and expert on the topic of shame. And in this part of our conversation, we're going to talk about what shame does to our bodies physiologically and also what practices we can engage in to help offset the damaging consequences of living with shame. In my initial introduction to part one, I recounted the story of how my initial interview with Dr. Germer went awry. And the Cliff Notes version to that is, we had a fabulous one hour conversation via Zoom. And when I got off the call and checked the file, we had fantastic video and absolutely no sound. I was mortified. The day I recorded that interview, I was about to leave to go out of town for my weekend away with my Lark sisters. Go back to season one if you want to hear about that. And so I knew I needed to do something to resolve this because otherwise I was going to keep replaying this catastrophic botched interview debacle in my head all weekend long. So thankfully, I had just had a one hour primer about how to recognize shame and what to do to help make it better. One of the things that helped me move through the complete embarrassment of botching that interview was the way that Chris had engaged with me when I first reached out to ask if I could speak with him. You know, I introduced myself in an email and I shared and let him know that our mutual friend Tina had, you know, connected us and explained to him the premise of my podcast, which is talking about parenting and caregiving for aging parents and all that goes along with that. And his response to me in his reply email was that he said, I don't have any kids. And both my parents are deceased. So I would sort of be the baloney in your sandwich. (laughs) So his humor and just the down to earth way that he had initially replied to me helped me muster the courage to reach out to him right after I found out that I had not captured our conversation and to ask him if we could do it again. And he graciously agreed to do that. So here's part two of our conversation about shame. As you talk and you talk about safety, what comes up for me is the question of what is the physiological occurrence in the body when a shame response is triggered? Yeah, well, physiologically, it's a threat response. Uh, when we feel ashamed, we feel threatened. 
We're not threatened from the outside by, you know, somebody wielding a club. We're threatened internally by a challenge to our self-esteem and our self-worth. But the body responds in the same way to external and internal threats, to threats to our bodies or to our egos. The body responds in the same way. And, and that is with a fight, flight, freeze response, uh, which is uh, known, which is accompanied by the, uh, by the hormones, um, adrenaline and, uh, and um, uh, cortisol. Uh, yeah, so when the body's you know, cranked up like that, it's really preparing for a fight. But the problem is, is that when it's a threat to our sense of self-worth, which is what shame is, a threat to our self-worth, it's a self-attack. Um, uh, we don't really have, usually what happens is when we're physically threatened, we kind of run it off. You know, we fight, we flee, the system then regains balance, and then we settle down. But if it's a threat to ourself, we're not, we don't really move the body. And so we stew in our juices. Right. And the research is very clear that chronic stress is terrible for the human body. But we also have found in the research that stress related to shame is even more corrosive to uh, physical health than just distress in general. It seems like we're just a shame-based society. I mean, I think of you know, I have teenagers right now and I think of social media. I think of the news. I think of just entertainment culture that we're inundated with all the time. And it seems like it's really the motivating driving force is often to shame someone, to make someone feel less than or not as good as. And so how is it that for our kids and young people in this world, that we can buoy them to, to be more resilient in the face of that bombardment. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you that the culture is very judgmental and and especially the market economy, which basically tells you how deficient you are. And if you buy this, that, or the other, you're going to be, you know, more complete. Uh, so we're, we're really trained culturally to be diminished. And also if a person has a identity, which is, you know, not favored by the culture, mm-hmm. it's pretty relentless uh, to, to, you know, step out in the world and people act and talk in ways that, you know, have a serious weathering effect on the mind, the heart and the body. Um, but the opposite of shame is self-compassion. You know, the opposite of criticizing ourselves is being kind to ourselves. You know, the opposite of feeling all alone in shame is to feel connected to humanity. You know, the opposite of ruminating and being self-absorbed in shame is is a kind of spacious, loving awareness in mindfulness. So um, I believe, you know, um, I'm a clinical psychologist and I don't, I think that the best, the most powerful antidote to shame that we've ever come across is uh, self-compassion. It is the opposite of shame. And so talk a little bit more about self-compassion and and the components of that and how one would lean into self-compassion 
to help offset a shame response or neutralize a shame response? Yeah. So, so first of all, our self-worth can come from outside or inside. Um, when our self-worth is just dependent on the culture, we have a very unstable sense of self. But when it comes from inner kindness, being kind to ourselves when things go wrong, uh, the sense of self is much more stable. So in these times, if we want to have a stable sense of self, strong sense of self, we need to have self-compassion. But self-compassion one of the literally... You said, one of the things you said in, I think one of the chapters maybe that you sent me was that teenagers are more, and kids are more um, at risk for yeah. negative effects of shame because because why? What is... Wh- well, at that age, uh, kids are no longer in, in, in the safe and predictable environment of the family and, and they're stepping out into the world and their friends are make a ton of difference and then they get online and you know likes and dislikes become important. And so the, the sense of self is, is really suddenly in a new arena. And that arena does not really care about individuals quite as much as say a parent might, you know? And so the sense of self is really quite vulnerable. Also, teenagers need to discover, you know, how their particular personalities and skills uh, can be rendered useful in the larger society. So they're really interested in, you know, how am I doing? What do I do well? What makes people like me? What makes people turn away from me? So there's a lot of work going on in terms of finding one's place through uh, systems of approval and disapproval. And that is really harsh on the sense of self-worth. Therefore, teenagers, to step when they step into this world, they really need a strong foundation in self-compassion. And self-compassion literally means um, uh, being as kind and understanding to ourselves when we suffer as we would be uh, perhaps toward a good friend. That's what it means. And you asked about the components. The three components are, according to Kristen Neff, who uh, operationalized self-compassion for research back in 2003. The three components are uh, mindfulness or uh, knowing what we're feeling in the moment, common humanity, which is uh, not losing the sense that I am human, you know, which means, uh, uh, you know, we're all human beings got strengths and weaknesses. We're not perfect. Uh, so to be able to rest in our human imperfection, but doing this with kindness. So the third component is self-kindness. In other words, a kind of warmth and tenderness uh, for ourselves as uh, human beings, you know, with some flaws and also some wonderful qualities. But, you know, when we decide that we're supposed to be one way and not the other, and we're supposed to be better than average, you know, let's face it, you know, how many of us have been told, oh, you're average and felt really good about it. You know, it's so funny we're all really that. It's so funny that you say that because when I was in law school and I was taking contracts, my contracts professor, I did a, a sample uh, exam and I submitted it in prep, you know, for my, my formal exam and his remark 
on the paper when I when I got it back was competent. All right. <laughs> and it felt oh, exactly it felt so bad. Oh, competent. Yeah, yeah. You know, which which, you know, if if you felt fundamentally incompetent, it could mean, oh, now I'm competent. Awesome. You know, but, <laughs> but it did. It struck but, me as being like really rock bottom basic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It passing. felt like it felt like less than competent to hear that. It did. <laughs> competent. It did. Yeah. So that's the way we're we're uh you know, organized. We're always supposed to be like special and above average, uh, according to you know cultural messages, and that's just simply not so. So, what self compassion does is enables us to really be more fully human, which means to lean into the good things about us, and also lean into maybe some of the areas that aren't so well developed in us, and also lean into the positive experiences and lean into the negative experiences you know another thing people nowadays are just so terrified that they're not happy enough and that's a personal failure you know how about letting go of that and just allowing ourselves to be unhappy with a lot of kindness consideration lo and behold we start getting happy (laughs) yeah and I, I think that that is a really that's a really big point because I think that um one of the challenges I have faced in my sort of quest to reclaim joy is that I've noticed in my own self that I have these very big, extravagant conceptions of what joy is supposed to look like. And it's almost like when I set the bar that high, it becomes inattainable. It becomes like so impossible to get to that level that then the misery just magnifies. Whereas when I'm sort of more in the moment and appreciation of the little things around me is noticed, then I have these little moments of happiness and joy that add up and add up and add up. And soon the bucket is much fuller. (laughs) yeah i think that's the secret of happiness it's like how are we relating to each moment of our lives not that if the conditions of our lives were you know waiting for the conditions of our lives to be completely different such that we're going to start to like our lives you know a lot of people they like struggle throughout their life working and then they retire and expect you know joy to suddenly descend upon them you know, sometimes it does, but it doesn't do that just because the conditions have changed. It does it when you use the time you have in for re- that you have for retirement to actually do the things moment to moment that give you joy, as you described, Karen. You know, so yeah, definitely, we need to we need to we need to really focus in on the little things, and they do add up, just like you said. And going back for a minute to something you said earlier, because you distinguished guilt and shame, and one of the things in your writings that I've read is that sticks with me. I think I morph the two quite often, but I really do think perhaps what I call guilt might really be shame in guilt's clothing. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. I, because guilt, as I read from your work, there's a component or an aspect of guilt that is motivating to make amends or change behavior. Whereas shame doesn't have that, that it seems like shame just kind of turns everything 
inwardly in a very caustic manner. Is that accurate? Yes, that's entirely the case. Yeah. When we, when we feel attacked, either through our own self-attack, self-shaming or shamed by others, uh, we turn into a very small ball, you know, we're just like a, like a, like a dog licking its, you know, feet or something, you know, licking a wound. Uh, it, we don't really see much outside of ourselves when we are uh, caught in shame. So shame is, uh, and not helpful for, you know, repair. Uh, if, if, you, if we've done something wrong, you know, when, when parents shame a child for doing something wrong, they're actually doing something counterproductive because the child is not capable of, of assessing what went wrong, how, what might've led up to it or how to rectify the situation that only can occur when uh, it's less about me and my faults and more about behaviors and ways that I can, in fact, maybe do things better. You know, it has to be a practical problem, not a self-oriented indictment. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And in terms of, you know, I think that my personal situation, I see um, the link, I think, between shame and depression and anxiety. And I have a child who suffers deeply with anxiety and depression. But I think that that is definitely um, pervasive when it comes to particularly our youth. But I think most everybody, I think that they're, you know, when, when when I look at or read stats on anxiety and depression, it is, it seems like more often people are affected by that than not affected by that. Um, so I definitely feel like the, the application of self-compassion could be very useful in reducing those numbers too, in terms of how people are suffering with their mental health. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, well, it's very, the, the research is clear that, uh, shame is associated with most form, most psychological diagnoses, you know, anxiety, distress, uh, substance abuse, eating disorders, personality disorders, and so forth, either as a cause or a consequence. Um, and the other thing is that shame tends to make difficult emotions sticky. So if a person, for example, um, uh, you know, feel sad and then feels ashamed about feeling sad, then the sadness gets sticky. So for example, imagine somebody died and, uh, and your reaction is not just, oh, I'm so sorry the person died, but, you know, I really wasn't the person I wanted to be around this person. I, I behaved badly. In fact, I really was a, say it was a parent. Oh, I think I was a lousy son or a lousy daughter. If the person's passing is associated with self-flagellation for having been a bad person, it's really, really hard to grieve and let go, you know, because we're not actually grieving. We're just beating up on ourselves the whole time when, in fact, if we weren't beating up on ourselves, we would be able to feel how sad it is that a person passed. And over time, that just 
passes. It just goes on its own. You know, bad feelings, if we can turn toward them in a kind way, they, they, they're transient, you know. But if, if our actual psychological activity after somebody dies is to beat up on ourselves, we don't get a chance to grieve. We're just doing something different. And then that goes on for a while. And eventually we're exhausted by that. And then, then after that, maybe we can grieve. So this is just a small example of how when we feel ashamed about a, a particular emotion, it gets sticky. Same thing with anxiety. You know, if you feel like I used to have public speaking anxiety for 20 years and I was so ashamed of it. And as a result, I had it for 20 years. You know, mm. if I could just say, oh, you know, this is my, it's my personal disability and it's, it's so embarrassing. In fact, I feel so ashamed about it. And if I could have just sort of been with my shame in a kind and compassionate way, it would have passed. But no, I didn't see the shame. I fought the shame unconsciously. I thought it was all about anxiety. I tried to deal with anxiety. Mm -hmm. It didn't go away. So, so shame makes other situations really sticky. And, and when we can get to the shame behind it, I mean, you had in the very beginning of this conversation, Karen, you said, you know, I think that I often feel unnecessary shame at work, at home, when I'm uh, out with friends or something like that. You're talking, you know, social life, work life. Uh, home. My relationship. Yep. Relationship. It, 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 seems to, it seems to be just kind of a little bit in the air everywhere I go. And I would be so relieved if I could just drop that thing. And, I, and this is indeed the case. Shame is a really... There's, there's a, a pretty favorable cost benefit analysis to shame. In other words, if you can learn to, if we can learn to work with shame, so many different areas of our lives uh, become easier, you know, and that's where self-compassion comes in. Self-compassion is an antidote to shame. It's learning how to be kind to ourselves when we struggle rather than to beat up on ourselves. And what's also interesting is that self-compassion addresses shame, even if we don't know we have shame because we're actually doing the opposite of shame, whether or not we knew it, we're, instead of beating up on ourselves, we're being kind to ourselves. So I really, I, I feel quite strongly that when we, if we feel that shame is in some ways limiting our lives in small ways, like not being fully ourselves or in big ways, like being unable to function, um, the medicine is the same, you know, self-compassion dismantles shame. Are there any specific practices, self-compassion practices that one could use, you know, to just to, to feel better in the moment or specifically to, you know, address uh, an incident that, that triggered shame? Uh, yeah, there, there are many practices. Um, uh, if you want to just ask, if a person, could, a person could just ask themselves the question, like, what do I need right now? It's a very compassionate question. What do I need right now? And if we're really upset, probably can't answer it. But then you get more specific. You know, what do I need now to comfort myself uh, emotionally? You know, um, what do I need to soothe myself physically? Maybe a cup of tea. What do I need to validate myself? Maybe write a journal. What do I need to protect myself? Maybe say no. What do I need to nourish myself? Maybe get some exercise. What do I need to encourage myself? You know, maybe meet up with a friend and have a heart to heart. So what do I need? 
in a moment of struggle to ask ourselves, what do I need, um, is a powerful question. And, and then when we have an answer, to actually do it. Another question you can ask is, how do I care for myself already? Because usually when we're struggling, we don't do good things for ourselves. We just beat up on ourselves and feel bad. But to remember, oh, these are my kind of go-to ways of self-care and then do it when we're struggling, that's self-compassion. But perhaps the best question is, how would I treat a friend in exactly the same situation as I? Like feeling what I'm feeling, being here in this mess. If this were a friend and I just popped into the room and I could see what was going on, what would I say to my friend? What would the tone of my voice be? What would I do? And and then do that for ourselves. So these are all what we call behavioral uh, self-compassion. These are things we can do in behavior. But then there are also internal practices, what we would call, you know, uh, mental training, mental mm-hmm. training. And that is based on, and, and um, since the three components of self-compassion are mindfulness, common humanity, and self-kindness, you can practice mindfulness. In other words, being aware of the present moment in a kind of a spacious and a loving way. There's many resources for practicing mindfulness. The second is common humanity, which is reminding ourselves that this is part of the human experience. Just about everything that we do, especially when we feel ashamed, is not unique to us. It's just part of being human. So to remind ourselves, uh, this is hard, but I guess it's excellent evidence that I'm a human being, you know, imperfect human being like all human beings are. And then the third is self-kindness, you know, so to practice kind of emotionally self-kindness. So you can do that any number of ways. You can put a hand over part of the body that might be stressed out in that moment. That's quite amazing, actually. It shifts our, it down, there's research that shows that it downregulates cortisol. Remember we said cortisol was a threat hormone. Mm-hmm. So if you gently rub the part of your body that might be holding stress, you're actually going to reduce the amount of cortisol in your body decrease the stress response. And you can also ask yourself, oh, if, 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 uh, if somebody walked into the room right now and t- spoke into my ear words that I really need to hear at a time like this, what would I hear? Maybe you'd hear something like, I love you. I'm here for you. I believe in you. I trust you. You're a good person, something like that. But then uh, have the courage to say those kind of things to ourselves. It's not so easy in a moment of shame. But uh, maybe uh, if you just imagine that somebody else is saying it to you, not you saying it to you, or just imagine yourself saying that to a friend. It doesn't matter. As long as the words are arising, it doesn't matter the direction. To actually find a way to offer those kind words to your mind in a moment of difficulty, in a moment of shame, is radically uh, uh, transformative. So these are some handy dandy techniques, but it, a person could also uh, look, you know, into the mindful self-compassion training program. And there's just a ton of stuff in there that uh, people can explore and, you know, tailor, customize to their own lives. And you have a, you have a course coming up this fall, right? In that vein. Um, uh, yeah, we have a course on self-compassion for shame coming up, but in order to take that course, you need to have a prerequisite of having already learned some self-compassion through taking 
a regular self-compassion training? Because when we start to approach shame, we're really going into some tough stuff, often uh, traumatic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we don't want people to dive into the deep end of the pool. You know, we want people to learn how to swim, have that resource, uh, you know, going and know how to be self-compassionate and then, then go into the deep end of the pool into shame. So, yeah. In terms of, in terms of life process and growth, do we grow out of shame or do we just grow into being able to manage it better? That's a great question. Uh, the, the latter, we learn to manage it better. And it also becomes background, not foreground. You know, in other words, there might be, and, and also less volume, you know. So mm-hmm. we all, when, we under, when we're under stress or we, our sense of self is threatened, we're probably going to shame ourselves in some ways. But if we have the habit of self-compassion built in, it's just not going to come up as much. People who have been practicing self-compassion for a year or two. They will all say this. They'll say, you know, I never thought I'd get here, but actually I'm now treating myself as well as I treat a good friend. <laughs> I never thought this was possible. I don't know that I'm there yet, but I did take your antidote to shame course last year. And I do find that what it helped me do was recognize more readily in the moment when I lapse into a shame response. Ah, yeah. So that's the awareness. Yeah. The awareness. Yeah. So when people take uh, any kind of self-compassion training, they often say um, uh, it gave me uh, it, it made me um, aware that self-compassion exists, but it also gave me permission mm-hmm. to be kind to myself. So we need to know when we're beating up on ourselves or when we're kind to ourselves, but we also need to give ourselves permission because the culture doesn't give ourselves permission. You know, the culture says, uh, you know, love other people as you love yourself. But the problem is most of us actually love other people more than ourselves. I was just saying this weekend, I I gathered with some friends and I said, really, it should be flipped around. It's like, do unto yourself as you would do unto others. Yeah. So that's actually hard to do. And but but this is what self-compassion training is all about. And it works. I mean, the research shows over and over again, people can do it. And and the out, you know, as I mentioned, there's a kind of a positive cost benefit, the outcome, the impact of learning to be kinder to ourselves when things go wrong, it is it affects every area of our life. And 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 also even in the middle of the night when we're sleeping, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you have a nightmare and your system is, you know, frazzled and, and you, you know, you feel frightened, your body has threat physiology happening. What does it take to just calm that nervous system down and go to sleep again? takes a lot of self-compassion, you know, like, oh, honey, you just had a nightmare. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, nightmares happen. Actually, everyone in the world gets them occasionally. And then some self-kindness, you know, like, oh, may I feel safe. May I be safe, free from fear. May I be kind to myself. May I be kind to others. You know, you talk to yourself in a kind way, kind wishes, Boom, system goes, shuts down, you go right back to sleep. 
So self-compassion is a portable friend. It isn't a friend you need to call up and you get to talk to every three weeks. It's a portable friend that gets uh, implanted in your heart, carry with you everywhere you go. We just have to remember it's there. We just have to remember and give ourselves permission. Yeah. Those are the two things. Well, I'm so appreciative of this time with you again. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for spending time with me and talking about this. Because I think that, that from a parenting perspective, and I know from a caregiving perspective, that when I am self-compassionate and I cut myself some slack, I really um, am able to do more for others and do for, more for myself. So, so I appreciate you being here. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Karen. It yeah. was delightful. Thank you. To learn more about self-compassion as the antidote to shame and to find out more about Dr. Germer's work and the courses that he offers, check out his website at chrisgermer.com and follow him on Instagram at Christopher Germer, PhD. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode to find all those links and a lot more. I'm Karen Osborne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Living in the Sandwich Zone. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you like this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Like, subscribe, follow the podcast, and share it with a friend. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, one of the best ways you can support me is rating and reviewing the podcast there. You can follow me on Instagram at karen.e.osborne. That's O-S-B-O-R-N-E. Or if you want to become an insider, a club sandwich member, click the link in the show notes and join my private Facebook group. Until next time, remember to add yourself to your caregiving list and take a moment today and do something that brings you joy.